There are some places on this earth that are particularly rich in fossils. In the middle of Los Angeles, for example, one can find the so-named La Brea Tar Pits, a pool of black asphalt that's been bubbling and seeping for many thousands of years. For the past century or so, several bones and even complete skeletons have been unearthed in the primordial ooze, as countless Ice Age animals like mammoths, ground sloths, and saber-toothed cats became trapped in it. Another rich site can be found along the southwest coast of England, particularly in the county of Dorset, though the fossils found there are decidedly old. Affectionately known as the Jurassic Coast, many great finds have been discovered there over the past 200 years that reflect the wide variety of marine life in the Earth's distant past. It was here along these windswept cliffs that some of the earliest discoveries in the science of paleontology were made, and it might surprise you to learn that one of the field's pioneering figures was none other than a woman. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at the wondrous life and findings of Mary Anning, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. You might say that paleontology and fossils were in Mary Anning's blood from the start. Born in 1799 in the picturesque seaside town of Lyme Regis, her family was poor, so much so that her father, Richard, a carpenter and cabinet maker, had to supplement their income by selling quote-unquote curios to the ever-growing tourist trade in the town's public market. These curios were none other than fossils that had been dug up in those selfsame seaside cliffs along the Jurassic coast and were noted for their medicinal and mystical properties. There were devil's fingers, thought to be belemnites, the fossilized remains of small prehistoric squid, snake stones, or ammonites, a sort of shelled mollusk that evolved in the primordial seas long before the dinosaurs, as well as vertebraries, the vertebrae of various marine reptiles. At the tender age of five or six, young Mary would often accompany her father on these fossil hunting expeditions, an unfathomable pastime for girls in those days, and quickly learned how to spot, clean, and care for each of the specimens, which her father would proudly display for sale in the window of his carpentry shop. As was the custom at the time, combined with the family's financial situation, Mary received no formal education. She was, however, taught to read and write, and in her formative years, she instructed herself on such subjects as anatomy and geology, both of which would come in handy in her paleontological work later on. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the field of paleontology was relatively new. Though fossils and fossilized remains had been unearthed for several centuries dating back to antiquity, no formal science surrounding the subject had ever been proposed before, with such discoveries being passed off as proof of the existence of dragons and other mythical beasts, as well as proof of the biblical flood. However, as science, logic, and reason began overtaking faith and superstition, a renewed interest and emphasis on the subject arose. Many consider the first paleontologist to be Gideon Mantell, a British obstetrician who's credited with quote-unquote discovering the dinosaurs through his own discovery of the skeletal remains of what we now know to be the Iguanodon. Such work fired the public's imagination, as it surely must have for young Mary, and set off an interest in fossil hunting and collecting. But a major, albeit tragic, turning point took place in Mary's life when she was just 11 years old. Her father, Richard, died of consumption, also known as tuberculosis, in 1810. With no breadwinner, the elder child, Joseph, had to assume command of the family business, becoming an upholsterer's apprentice and amateur fossil hunter. Their mother, Molly, encouraged young Mary to accompany her brother on such expeditions, as she'd had previous experience working alongside their father. So it was that she greatly contributed to the latter of the family's two practices, but little could she have suspected that she herself would be responsible for some of the greatest and most important discoveries in paleontology's early years. 
A year after her father's passing, 12-year-old Mary and her brother Joseph were out rooting for fossils, as was their custom, along the shore just outside their hometown of Lyme Regis. As previously stated, this coastline is marked by high, chalky cliffs, and while less famous than the iconic White Cliffs of Dover, they still make for an impressive sight, especially when seen from the sea. It was here during a particularly grey, windy day that Joseph spotted something jutting out of the rock. It appeared to be a skull, but of a sort that neither of the two had ever seen before. Enthralled by this discovery, the pair would return to the site to keep digging over the ensuing weeks, until, at last, she could trace the outline of its entire skeleton. It wasn't long before word of this unusual find spread throughout Lyme Regis, as well as other towns in Dorset. As far as people were concerned, young Mary and her brother had happened upon a monster, a hideous and frightening beast, the like of which was, thankfully, long dead. The question, however, remained. What exactly had the siblings discovered? Upon first glance, it perhaps resembled a crocodile, which is what scientists initially thought. In those days, the reigning theory regarding rare and unusual skeletal remains was that exotic fauna from other parts of the world had simply drifted off course, only to end up in places far away from their natural habitats. As the west coast of Africa wasn't all that far away, geographically speaking, the crocodile theory gained some traction, albeit for a brief period of time, among experts. But when it was turned over to early paleontologists, who spent several years studying it, it became increasingly clearer that it wasn't a crocodile. In fact, it appeared to be a reptile with the features of a fish, and the name they bestowed upon the creature reflects this, Ichthyosaurus, from the Greek meaning fish lizard. We now know that it lived some 201 to 194 million years ago in the early Jurassic period. The complete skeleton is now on display at the Natural History Museum in London. Thus, young Mary and her brother became something of local celebrities in both Lyme Regis and throughout Dorset. However, as the scientific community was hesitant to attribute credit to women at the time, much of the publicity surrounding the discovery went to Joseph, despite the fact that it was Mary who had largely unearthed the rest of the skeleton and made the detailed sketches of the find. Still, to this day, the ichthyosaur is a creature that's almost unanimously attributed to her, and in my opinion, rightfully so, though it wasn't by any means the only fossilized remain she'd happen upon. Riding the high of their incredible find, the siblings would naturally return to the Jurassic coast to seek new fossils. So it was that one day in 1823, during a hunt on the beach, that the then 24-year-old Mary found something even stranger than the ichthyosaur. Upon first glance, the skeletal remains resembled those of the ichthyosaur. In other words, it too had fins as well as a stout body. But what differentiated this creature from the previous was the long, snake-like neck that extended from the torso, at the end of which was an equally snake-like head. When she brought this discovery to the attention of scientists, it was deemed so bizarre that they rather unjustly accused her of crafting an elaborate fake. One of the leading paleontologists of the day, Georges Cuvier, himself believed it to have been false, a statement upon which he reneged following a special meeting of the Geological Society in London, whose sole purpose was to discuss this most unusual specimen. But even when it was found to be authentic, Mary received no credit for it. In fact, she wasn't even invited to said meeting, though it was here that the animal was christened with a name, Plesiosaurus, meaning almost reptilian. Despite this glaring injustice, Mary's reputation soon preceded her, as she quickly became something of a celebrity in various social and scientific circles throughout Britain. Through it all, the discoveries kept on coming, with her next find being the first pterosaur, flying reptiles that lived alongside the dinosaurs, to be unearthed outside of Germany, who, up until that point, had had the monopoly on such finds. The creature was dubbed Dimorphodon, and boasted large membranous wings and a long tail. These skeletal remains were the first of Mary's to draw the attention of scientists from abroad, specifically France, who, along with their British contemporaries, launched several studies on this, quote, unknown species of that most rare and curious of reptiles, unquote. 
It was also at this time that she began unearthing and studying coprolites, which is a polite term for fossilized dinosaur droppings. Rumor has it that the work was quite crappy, but who are we to judge? All joking aside, she became a pioneer in this field, and her classification techniques are still used by paleontologists to this day. Though Mary Anning's claim to fame was the three aforementioned finds, they were by no means the only fossils she dug up. Throughout her life, she continued to comb the seaside cliffs around Lyme Regis in constant search of new discoveries, most of which she sold to museums or else private collections. Her work greatly fueled public interest in paleontology, which was still a relatively new science at the time. Though the scale of such curios provided a decent amount of money, it wasn't enough to cover her financial strains, at which time her good friend, the geologist Henry de la Beche, put aside his pickaxe in favor of a paintbrush in order to help her out. Inspired by Mary's work, he pioneered what we now refer to as paleoart, creating the first ever rendering of prehistoric life based directly upon fossilized evidence. The resulting masterpiece, a dramatic illustration known as Duria Anticur, a more ancient dorset, complete with ichthyosaur, plesiosaur, and pterosaur, was completed in 1830, the proceeds from which he gave to Mary to help her make ends meet. Still, despite the kind gesture, it wasn't nearly enough to settle her financial strain, and she died 17 years later from breast cancer. She was just 47 years old. Despite her lifetime of fossil hunting as well as pioneering the science of paleontology, she remained largely unrecognized in the years after her passing. Indeed, the Geological Society in London, who initially had had issues with crediting a woman for her amazing discoveries, didn't allow women to enroll until 1904. Still, through her friends, the people of Lyme Regis, and those within the paleontological sphere who weren't bigoted towards the female sex, her work was promoted to ensure that her name would go down in history. It's because of these factions that we know her name today, and each of the three fossilized remains she unearthed are now proudly on display at the Natural History Museum in London, where they continue to enthrall visitors from across Britain and beyond. In the immortal words of Dr. John Hammond, welcome to Jurassic Park. All joking aside, thanks for listening again this week and for embarking on this journey with me. Mary Anning is by now a household name as far as paleontology is concerned, and I think she'd be pleased knowing that she's finally received credit for her pioneering work. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in next week for another exciting installment. To support this podcast, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will take you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me out, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Have a great rest of your week, everyone, and be sure to tune in next Thursday for another episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.